All right. So, like I said, we are going to look at the first two kings of Israel. We're going to start with Saul. King Saul was the first king who reigned over Israel, and his reign started out very promising. Saul looked the part. He was tall. He was handsome. He was from the right kind of family, an influential and wealthy family. His reign started out pretty promising, and early on, he had some real successes. But ultimately, Saul's story is tragic. He lacked integrity. He lacked conviction. And we look at his life, and we just watch a slow unraveling because of his failure, because of his disobedience. So what we're going to do today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And this is an account of Saul's failure. Saul was supposed to go to battle against the Amalekites, and he was to completely defeat the Amalekites. And I want to pause right here because Scott and I have talked through this a lot. And I I know some of you probably experience the same difficulties when you read about war and violence, particularly in the Old Testament. There's something in us that struggles with like, how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we understand this? And I don't have time to unpack all of that today, but I didn't want to just blow, blow by it and not acknowledge it. Um, there is something in us that feels a tension when we read about, about war in the Old Testament. And I just want to encourage you to remember, God is good. God is just. While the kingdom of Israel came through the sword, the kingdom of Jesus does not. And we understand the Old Testament And the difficult passages in the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. We look at it through the eyes of Jesus and we have the benefit of being able to do that because of where we are living in history. So I just want to acknowledge that as we get started today. But let me tell you what's happening in this chapter. So Saul is supposed to go and defeat the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a a neighboring group of people who wanted Israel to be destroyed. The first time we meet them is when Israel leaves Egypt. And the Amalekites, when Israel is at their very weakest, they attack them. They are bent on Israel's destruction. And there is an ongoing tension and battles between Israel and the Amalekites that we see. And so Saul was to go and he was to defeat the Amalekites, and he was not to benefit in any way from this battle. Because part of what battles were used for was to make yourself powerful, right? You would go in, you would have a battle, you would take the best of the plunder from whatever you know people group the battle was between, the winner's take all kind of thing. And God said, nope, no, 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 you do not do that. You should not in any way benefit from this conflict. So Saul's set up to, to go and to do this, to battle with the Amalekites, to not benefit in any way. And he goes, but he doesn't obey. And then Samuel, who's the prophet, we talked about Samuel last week. He's the, he's the prophet in Israel right now. And he goes to find Saul to confront him about his disobedience, about his failure. And we're not going to read this, but I want you to know a very important thing about where Samuel finds Saul. Saul is in a place called Gilgal, and he is very busy building a monument to himself. So Saul has battled it out with the Amalekites, and now he's feeling real good about himself, and he's busy building a monument to himself. And Samuel comes and confronts Saul. This is where we're going to pick it up. This is 1 Samuel 15, verses 19 to 22. This is Samuel speaking. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So Samuel confronts Saul. Saul spins a story and is like, what? What are you talking about? Like, I did obey. I did everything I was supposed to do. And Samuel pushes back on him a little bit. In verse 24, Saul finally says, Okay, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So here we're thinking, okay, like he's, he said, I'm sorry. He admitted to his sin. But if we read just a little bit further, we see the motive of Saul's heart, the reason that he admitted to his disobedience, to his failure. In verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So all Saul wants is Samuel's stamp of approval. He's, he's saying whatever he needs to say to save face. That's the bottom line of what we see in Saul's speaking the words, I'm sorry, I've sinned. This is the, the beginning of the end for Saul. From this point on, we watch this slow slide into corruption that ultimately res- results in madness and violence in the life of Saul. Um, it's, a, it's a sad story from here on out. He ultimately ends up coming to his end in a grisly battle with the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel. So what I want us to do in this first little look that we have into Saul's life is examine how he responded when he was confronted with his failure. Samuel came to Saul and confronted him. And the first thing that Saul does is he denies it. That's the very first thing he does. He's like, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission that the Lord gave me. He just flat out denies his failure. But that doesn't work because Samuel keeps pushing. And so then the next thing Saul does is he justifies his sin. And this is where I this week have been like, oh, how easy is it to justify our sin? How easy is it for me to justify my sin? And the thing is, we're really, really good at it. We can convince ourselves that our justification for the failures in our own lives are valid. Think about how often we cloak gossip as a prayer request. It's not gossip. No, I'm I'm just, I just want you to know what's going on so you can pray, right? How about greed? How often do we cloak our greed in Wisdom. Well, we're just, we're just being wise with our money. We're just planning for the future. We're not being greedy. And here's the thing. Both prayer requests for people who are struggling and being wise with our money, 
Those are good things to do. And there absolutely is a time and a place for that. But it's very easy to jump over to the other side where it turns from genuine wisdom to actual sin that we are justifying and we convince ourselves of it, right? How about the self-care movement? We live in a culture that self-care is, is everything. You got to take care of yourself so you can take care of other people. And there's truth to that, right? There's truth to sometimes we have to draw boundaries. Sometimes we need rest, but that's not the way that Jesus shows us to live. How often do we cloak our selfishness in this language of self-care that's really acceptable in our culture? Justifying our sin is a dangerous and slippery slope, and it's one that I have been very, very aware of in my own life as I have prepared for this. The third thing that Saul does, he blames other people. He's like, what? oh, it wasn't me. I, I didn't take the plunder. It was the soldiers who took the plunder. It wasn't me. Oh, that's an easy one, right? It's not my fault. The thing that went wrong at work, the lie that took place, it wasn't me. It was my coworker. It was... It was my brother, kids. That <laughs> wasn't me. It was my brother, kids, my kids. She's mad. Audrey's like, what do you mean? I didn't do anything. <laughs> right? It's easy to start to blame. If we're uncomfortable and we're stuck, confronted with our failure, we deny it, we justify it, we blame other people for it, just like Saul. And then finally, Saul does admit to his sin, but it was for his own gain. The only reason that he did it is because he wanted to save as much face as he could save. He wanted the people's approval. He says that. I was just listening to the people's voice. He wanted the people to love him. His heart was not broken by his failure, by his disobedience. He just wanted the approval of the people around him. Saul finds out at this, at the point of this failure, Samuel tells him, you have disqualified yourself from the kingship. You will lose the kingdom. God at this moment is raising up your neighbor, a man after God's own heart, who will be king over Israel. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 16, we meet David. And David is very different. His beginning story is very different from Saul's. Remember, Saul, he looked the part. He was handsome and tall, and he came from the right kind of family. And when God shows Samuel who the next king is going to be, and Samuel goes, David isn't even in the picture. David's the youngest in a long line of big, handsome brothers, and he's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. And Saul, or Samuel looks at brother after brother after brother, and God's like, nope, it's not that one, it's not that one, it's not that one. And finally, David comes in, kind of the runt of the family. And, and instead of being the big, strong, handsome-looking man that looks the part of the king, David's just the youngest brother who is out in the fields, right? And God tells Samuel, hey, listen, I don't look at the same thing you look at. I don't judge the way that you judge. I look at the heart. And David is anointed as king, but nobody knows it yet. Only David knows it. And then David ends up getting conscripted into Saul's army. He serves Saul in a variety of different ways, and he's a faithful um, servant of Saul. He's a musician for Saul. He's his armor bearer. He ends up um, the famous David and Goliath, probably what we know David best for. He defeats Goliath. And from that point on, David wins the favor of the people, and he has tons of military success. So David is growing in his 
influence and Saul becomes more and more and more jealous of David and what God is doing in David's life and the way that God is using him to the point that Saul ends up chasing David. He sends David on the run and his goal is to murder him. David runs from Saul for years and he has many opportunities, several while he's on the run to actually take Saul's life. David is innocent. He has done nothing but serve loyally and Saul is bent on his destruction. And David does not take vengeance into his own hands. We really see the true character of David in these stories of him in the wilderness. He takes a group of men, we call them David's mighty men, and they're loyal to David, and they flee with David. And we see David's radical faith and trust and humility. And when Saul dies, word comes to David that Saul has been killed in battle along with his sons. And rather than rejoice, David mourns the death of Saul. And David ends up uniting the kingdom or the tribes, becoming Israel's next king, his second king. And we're thinking, yay, okay, this is the king we were waiting for. If you remember last week, we talked about Samuel's warning about what living under the reign of a king might be like, that a king would take and take and take. And we experience that with Saul. And then we get to David and you can imagine the people being like, oh, I think this is it. I think this is, this is the kind of king that we've been longing for. But then we get to David's failure. We're going to look at that next. We're in 2 Samuel now. This is chapter 11. Things have been going well. David's had tons of military success. The people love him. He's humble. He's faithful. He loves God. He's committed to God. And then we get this account of David's failure. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read verses 2 through 5. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Pause right there. One, just one quick note for you. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. In 2 Samuel 23, chapter 23, there's a list of um, some accounts about the men who were loyal and faithful to David when he was on the run from Saul. Uriah's on that list. So this is like one of his good friend's wives that he sees and desires. It's not just somebody he doesn't know, which is still terrible, but this is his friend's wife who's been loyal to him, who's given his life for him, been willing to give his life for him. Let's keep reading. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I want to pause one more time. I pointed this out last week, and I want to point it out to you again, because we, again, see this pattern where the idea of taking indicates that sin is at work, that people are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're defining good and evil for themselves, and that's exactly what David does. He sees Bathsheba, he desires her, and he takes her. Same thing that happened in the garden, right? Eve saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, she took the fruit. If you circled take in your Bible last week, maybe go ahead and do it again right here. Notice that pattern at play. 
So when David gets word from Bathsheba that she is pregnant, he's like, okay, I'm backed into a corner now. I've got to, I've got to do something about this. Uriah, her husband, he's out fighting for Israel where David should have been as the king at the front of that battle. David's taking a nap on the couch and Uriah is out fighting. So David sends word, send Uriah back under the pretense of asking him for an update. How's the battle going? But what David's plan is, is, you know, I'm going to bring David back. He's been away from his wife. He's going to be home. I'll send him home, spend a nice weekend with his wife, go back to battle. When Bathsheba tells Uriah that she's pregnant, Uriah will assume that it's her or that it's his child. So he, he, implements his plan. He calls Uriah back and Uriah's like, oh, I can't, I can't go home to my wife. My brothers are out there fighting. I, I can't do that because he's an honorable man. So he doesn't go home to his wife. So the next day, David gives him a nice meal, gives him some wine, tries again, He's hoping maybe he gets him in a good mood, sends him home to his wife. Nope, still no luck. Uriah does not go. So now David's really backed into a corner. And what does he do? He sends a letter with Uriah to Joab, the commander of the military, telling Joab, put Uriah at the front and then pull the men back. Put him where he is sure to die. And sure enough, Joab obeys the king's orders. Uriah is killed in battle. And David's like, whew, got out of the one. He broke like half the Ten Commandments right there, right? In this little example here, big time failure. But David's thinking, okay, I, you know, I got out of it. Nobody knows. But then God sends Nathan, a prophet, to confront David about his failure. Let's read it. This is 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7, and verse 9 and 13. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Pause right there for a second. David doesn't know that the story that Nathan is telling him is a made-up story for the purpose of illustrating a point, because part of what the king did was he heard cases and he passed down sentences. So David's listening to this account, and David knows the Mosaic law. Under the Mosaic law, if you stole a lamb from somebody else, you had to repay it fourfold. David knows that, and you see that in his judgment. He does say that they must restore the lamb fourfold, but here's the thing. It was not a capital punishment to steal a, a lamb from a neighbor under the Mosaic law. And David's first pronouncement is this man deserves to die. As I was studying for this, I came across some commentary that pointed this out as well. But I thought, how often when there is sin or failure in our own lives, we become more intolerant, more judgmental, more harsh when we see sin in somebody else's life. It's like, 
we are hiding something in the darkness here, and so we got to make up for it over here. And I think that might be what was at play in David's response and his extreme anger that was kindled when he hears this story. Let's go on. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Can you imagine who's been caught? Like I remember as a kid, just getting caught red-handed, doing something I wasn't supposed to do. And it's that, you, you know, that sinking feeling like, oh, I think David must have felt that right here. You are the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, how did David respond? We looked at how Saul responded, right? He denied, he justified, he blamed, and he admitted for his own gain. How did David respond? David, like Saul, did confess, but David immediately confessed. Immediately, he said, I have sinned. That was his first response when he was confronted with his failure. We have such a gift in the Psalms because Psalm 51 is a Psalm that David wrote after being confronted by Nathan. And in the words of those Psalms, or of of that Psalm, we see that after admitting his sin, David counted on God's abundant mercy. He admitted immediately, and then he just threw himself on the mercy of God. Psalm 51 opens with these words, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, David had gotten to know the character of God when he was on the run and really all of his life, he trusted God and he walked closely with God. So he knew the character of God. When, when Saul was confronted about his sin, you see him tell Samuel, well, I was going to take the plunder to sacrifice to your God not to my God. I don't think Saul knew the heart of God, but David knew the heart of God. And it caused him to be able to cast himself on God's abundant mercy. And then David asked God to change his heart. David knew that in and of himself, failure and disobedience was his bent, but that God would give him and could give him a new heart, a changed heart. In Psalm 51, verse 10 to 12, David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So, When we look at these two examples, both of these kings failed in major ways, but the way that they responded to their failure is so different from one another. And you know, when we as modern day Americans are reading accounts out of the Old Testament, we're reading ancient literature that was written about people in a very different time and a very different place. And so we can't just copy and paste and like, you know, perfectly apply something that we read in the Old Testament to our lives today. But what we are meant to do is to meditate, to study, 
to allow the wisdom that exists here. These stories are here for a reason. So we need to draw out the application to our life today. And so that's what I want us to do. What lessons do we learn from the failure of these two kings? And the first thing I think is we need to ask God to enable us to see ourselves clearly. When I was starting my freshman year of high school, I lived, I don't know, two and a half or maybe three miles away from my high school. I went to Arvada West High School. And first day of freshman year, I wanted to be looking real good. So I picked out my outfit. I had really curly hair when I was younger. If you know my daughter, Audrey, my hair looked just like hers when I was headed into my freshman year. And I wanted my hair to be sleek and straight for my first day of school. So I got up real early. I straightened my hair. I got dressed. And I felt like it was just very uncool to have your parents drive you to your first day of school. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk like three miles to my first day of school. So I'm, all, I'm looking great head out the door feeling real confident, but it's kind of a misty, cool morning. And I'm walking, walking, walking. I get to school, I walk in the door and I'm saying hi to all my friends, catching up after the summer. And I think I am looking good. Like I am starting my high school career off just excellent. I go to my first class, sit through my first class. I pop into the bathroom between my first and second class. And my sleek, straightened hair that's actually curly was just a giant frizzball. And I had no idea. I went through that whole morning thinking, I look so good. To then go into the bathroom and I was mortified. Like I put my hair up in a messy bun and just thought, oh, this was the worst start to high school that could have happened. And I think that is such a good example of what Saul did. Like Saul was like, what do you mean I, I fail? I didn't fail. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. When he was confronted with this failure, he didn't even see it. So we need to have a clear view of our own lives and our own hearts. We need to ask God to enable us to see ourselves as we actually are. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes a very sobering statement. He says, this is verse 22 and 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. You will see things, see yourself as you really are. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If we don't see ourselves clearly, if we, like Saul, are unaware of the areas in our life where sin is reigning and ruling, where we have failure and disobedience, how great is the darkness? Ask God to help you see yourself clearly. And then secondly, embrace accountability. Both Saul and David were approached by somebody else to point out the ways that they were walking in failure. It's hard to hear that from somebody else. And here's the thing, it's not gonna happen on Facebook. It's not gonna happen over social media. It's not gonna happen in a casual conversation at the grocery store or in the break room at the office. We have to intentionally create the kind of community in our lives where we can have people speak into our lives in this way. We need Nathans, we need Samuels. And we need to be Nathans and Samuels in the lives of the people close to us. And that does not happen without a lot of intentionality behind it. 
So I want you to ask yourself this morning, do you have people in your life who are willing to have the hard conversations with you? Do you have that kind of relationship? And if you don't, I want to encourage you, get into a home group. Get into a core group. Our home groups and our core groups are the places where we are doing life together, where we are sharing our struggles, our joys and our triumphs, but also the places that that are hard, the times when we come into our own failures. So if you don't have those kinds of relationships in your life, take the first step. Get into a home group. Craig and Stacy, are you guys here? They, Craig and Stacy Burns lead our home group ministry, and they would love to help you get involved. So if you don't have a place where you have these kinds of relationships, grab them after service today and ask them how you can get connected. Thirdly, lesson we can learn is to allow grief over sin to lead us to true repentance. One of the greatest differences between the failure of Saul and the failure of David is in the way that they repented. In... Um, 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. David allowed his sin to break his heart in such a way that led to this salvation, this repentance that leads to salvation. We see the opposite in Saul. His repentance was just about himself. He wasn't actually broken over his disobedience and his failure. And that kind of repentance leads to death. Allow our own grief over our failures to lead us to the repentance that leads to salvation. In Psalm 51, as David is writing about his own failure and his own need for repentance, he says in verse 17, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will never despise. God will never, ever turn away a broken and a contrite heart. We have a lot of hope in that. And then the fourth and final thing for us to learn, for us to take away from the lessons of the kings here, is to trust Jesus for forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, it's a pretty well-known verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is really the heart of the gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is about us being able to step in to a free and healed and whole relationship with him. We are brought in to perfect relationship with God the Father, with the Spirit, and with the Son through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the best news because the reality is every single one of us will experience our own failure moments, just like Saul and just like David. Every single one of us will hit those moments where we're confronted with our own sin, with our own disobedience. And in those moments, we have to decide what we're gonna do. We look to the cross. We trust Jesus. We trust that what he did, what he accomplished on the cross, covers all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our disobedience. King David and King Saul, they both failed. But Jesus, the one true king, 
will never fail, has never failed. In fact, he enters into our failure, into our brokenness, and he turns it inside out. He brings beauty out of ashes. We are no longer defined by our failures. We are no longer defined by our sin. And we're told that we're a new creation. In Jesus, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Let's begin to walk in that new identity today. I I wasn't planning to do this, but I feel like there are two kinds of people sitting in this room today. There's people who are sitting in this room who are aware of their failure. Maybe for the first time today, you're recognizing areas in your life that you have not been faithful, that you have defined good and evil for yourself and you've walked in your own wisdom. And there is a lot of conviction coming in that. I think there's also people in here today who cannot move past their failure. You hear me say that your failures don't define you, that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, but you don't believe it. You are still hanging on to something that's happened in the past, maybe something that's even recent past. You, you can't let it go. You can't believe that his grace is sufficient for you. So we're going to go back into a worship song and leaders, if you would be willing to set yourselves, maybe not at the front because it feels intimidating to walk to a front of a room, but just around the room. If you're a home group leader, make yourselves available. And I want to encourage you not to just sit in your own space, in your own guilt, in your own shame, but to reach out, go ask somebody to pray with you. You don't have to share details if you don't want to, but let's, let's lay our failures at the foot of the cross. Let's believe what Jesus says is true about us, that we're a new creation, that what he did was sufficient. Let's finish in worship and prayer together, just acknowledging that he's paid the price, that he's done everything that needed to be done so that we don't have to live in the shadow of our own failures. Let's go ahead and stand and and leaders make yourselves available and let's just worship together as we close today.
want to pray for us before we walk out of this room. Will you stay standing and just pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you take our failures and you take our disobedience and you take it upon yourself and you promise us that you're going to use it for our good and for your glory. So God, I pray for every person in here that we would not be stuck in our sin and in our failure and in our guilt and in our shame, but we would walk in the freedom and the hope that you give us because of your life, death, and resurrection, that we would carry that hope and walk in that identity of being a new creation out of this room into our lives and that we would be beacons of hope for the people around us, that the way that you have forgiven us would so shape the way that we live outside of this church building that people would take notice, that more and more and more people would experience your goodness and your grace. We just give you all the praise and all the glory this morning in your name. Amen, Jesus. Amen.